Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I'm talking to Dr. Beverly Tsakoyanis about her new book, Disturbing Spirits, Mental Illness, Trauma and Treatment in Modern Syria and Lebanon, which was published by the University of Notre Dame Press in 2021. Disturbing Spirits investigates the psychological toll of conflict in the Middle East during the 20th century, including a discussion of how spiritual and religious frameworks influence practice and theory. Blending social, cultural, and medical history research methods with approaches in disability and trauma studies, it demonstrates that the history of mental illness in Syria and Lebanon since the 1890s is embedded in disparate, but not necessarily mutually exclusive ideas about legitimate healing. Dr. Tsakoyanis is Associate Professor of History at the University of Memphis. Her research has focused so far on the history of mental illness in Lebanon and Syria, and she's currently collecting data for two other projects, one on disability, public health and trauma in Israel and Palestine, and another one on the politics of health in Jewish and Muslim communities in Spanish, French, and post-colonial Morocco. She engages in peace and conflict studies with a commitment to diversity and inclusion, and this has included research in and community engagement with social justice and disability rights activism, both in the U.S. and abroad. Beverly, welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. Thank you so much for having me. So to get us started, can you tell us how did this book come about? Or as I usually say here, what's your book's origin story? Yeah, so around 15 years ago, when I was a bright-eyed graduate student, I was working on narrowing down my dissertation topic, and I was fascinated by the centuries-long history of medical developments in the Islamic world, and then the newer, by which I mean 19th century developments, of medical schools and hospitals in Beirut, Cairo, Istanbul, kind of throughout the Eastern Mediterranean. And by the summer of 2008, I had begun working with records on site, at the first psychiatric hospital in the Damascus area of Syria. And I'd already worked with digitized records from the Lebanese mental hospital in Beirut called Asfuriye. So those sections of my book began with my graduate work when I was at Washington University in St. Louis. I had originally wanted the dissertation to be about the historical development of quote-unquote normality and abnormality and about how sectarianism in diverse ethnic and religious landscapes like Lebanon and Syria was connected to that. And I was going to have sections about physical illness and mental illness, both congenital and acquired, and a section on sexual behavior. And I would have this larger argument about how different agents within societies, whether it's government officials or medical experts, how they policed communities and shaped conversations about whose body and whose actions were quote unquote right and whose were wrong. And what did those policing agents decide to do with the quote wrong people? And I wanted to span the century from the early 1900s, when the Ottoman Empire still controlled the provinces that later end up as different countries in the Eastern Mediterranean, to just about the present day. So it turned out that that kind of project was way too large for an American graduate student to take on in Lebanon and Syria, especially the part about sexual behavior, where the closest I could get in data collection was records on illicit heterosexual relationships and venereal disease. 
but that wasn't what I was looking for. So I had to narrow down my focus. And in the summer of 2008, when I was in the middle of my exploratory fieldwork in Damascus, and I just received the go-ahead from the IFPO, the French Institute, from their branch in Damascus, which got me approval from the Syrian Ministry of Culture, which got me approval from the Syrian Ministry of Health to work with some records from one of their mental hospitals. And I decided I would just work on the psychiatric material. Um, And before I'd even left St. Louis for my first week's long trip to Syria, it quickly became clear to me that it would be best for political expediency if I did not put any focus at all on the period since the Assad family had taken over the Syrian government. So I stopped in the early 1960s for my dissertation. But another moment from my travels as a grad student planted seeds about another aspect of my work that went into the book about trauma and political conflict. And I didn't come back to that until after I finished grad school. So that that first moment in the summer of 2006, after my first year of my combined MA-PhD program at WashU, I was in Beirut taking a few summer classes in Arabic language and culture at the Lebanese American University at LAU. And I was wanting to focus mainly on Lebanon instead of also on Syria, but the Israelis bombed the city I was in, Beirut, and they destroyed the airport I flew into and had planned to fly out of when my summer program was scheduled to end. And of course, the war terrified my mom in New York, who had already lived through a civil war in the 1960s in the Dominican Republic, where she was born and raised before she moved to the United States. And 2006 was the first time I'd been to Lebanon. And so I flew straight to New York from Cyprus after the evacuation from the war by by cargo ship. And I promised my mom I would not go back to Lebanon until this thing with Israel calmed down, as we see how that's gone. (laughs) Um, So I decided Syria, as an authoritarian regime, in some ways like the one my mom had grown up under, with the dictatorship of Rafael Leonidas Trujillo de Molina, it wouldn't have the likelihood of devolving into chaos on the streets like in Lebanon. It wouldn't even have petty crime because everyone is terrified in a police state. And and I and the other Americans on my program in Lebanon, we were not evacuated immediately after the Israelis bombed the airport in Beirut. It took a few days of sleeping in the dorms in Beirut while the bombs fell along the coast and in the city, you know, and I do think that affected me a little bit. Um, And then we were um, sent to LAU's other campus in Jbeil, in Biblos, which the university administrators rightly guessed would not get bombed by the Israelis because it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And we stayed there for a few days trying to focus on our classwork. And then I get evacuated um, by the U.S. Embassy, uh, along with other U.S. citizens, on a Norwegian cargo ship that takes us from Beirut. So so we actually drove back into Beirut with the bombs and everything, too. And then we got to the port, and then we went to Larnaca in Cyprus. And then I fly out and get to New York, and I'm sitting on my mom's couch in Brooklyn watching the news and I'm seeing these Lebanese officials and Israeli officials speaking to international audiences, all while I knew that there were these people that I had met, these teachers with families of their own, some of whom I, you know, they had been born when I was, except I grew up in New York City in the 80s and 90s, and they grew up in Lebanon's civil war. And they were Lebanese citizens or Palestinian refugees in Lebanon who were not lucky enough to have dual citizenship, Um, like to the U.S. or to Canada, for example, and now they were trapped in Lebanon instead of being evacuated to Montreal. And I remember one of the teachers at LAU who was so kind to me, this elderly Greek Orthodox woman, as she saw me off on the bus that was going to take the American students from the program back to the port to the ship out of Lebanon, she said, remember us, Beverly. I never found out what happened to her in July of 2006. And there are people I befriended in Damascus in 2009 and 2010 
um, when I was there for a little under a year with the Fulbright Hayes funding that I have not heard from since the Syrian civil war began. And there are other friends who I've heard from contacts are confirmed casualties. So I feel I have a duty to remember and that my memory is only going to go so far. But if I write about it, if I could find a way to connect my research interests in normality and abnormality to this larger narrative about this call to care for one another, to care about people on the other side of the ocean or even the world, to care about the past, because it helps us understand the present, I thought it would help ease my survivor's guilt a little, honestly. And more importantly, it could contribute in some small way to building compassionate and resilient communities. So that's kind of where the book um, started and hopefully where it's going to be going. I love this question because I love books and I love knowing how, you know, the journey that the authors took to get to the, 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 this final uh, thing that we can hold or read uh, in a device. But in your case, it's even more interesting that how the historical events have affected the way you you could uh, do your research and write about this history. So thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, thank you. But let's talk about your book's title. Uh, you mentioned here that it draws from two different understandings of spirits. Could you explain that to us? Sure, yeah. So there's a feeling that I wanted to convey to readers with the multiple meanings in the book's title um, that I feel also Anas Humsey's artwork also represented for the cover design. Um, so disturbing spirits can stem from a religious or spiritual idea of spirits, um, including jinn, these beings of the smokeless flame of fire, as in the Quran. And then there's also ghouls or ghouls and ifrits, you know, demons, among other spirits. So there are these spirits that can cause disturbances or illnesses in people and other animals. And that is a disease ideology rooted in beliefs that the supernatural and natural worlds can and do influence each other. So a human being, male or female or in between, as Sarah Skalenge has noted with um, individuals that appeared in Ottoman medical and legal sources, any person might conjure or exercise a spirit should they be trained or blessed or cursed in the proper way to do it. And a spirit might possess a person or an animal should the spirit be so inclined. So, you know, the spirits dis disturb us. Uh, and these ideas have been part of many faith traditions, including all three Abrahamic communities, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, for centuries. And then there's the second meaning of disturbing spirits that relates to trauma theory. So we can experience a personally or collectively traumatic moment, and that can leave lasting damage on us. It can also shape us in other ways that may not be completely damaging. It can threaten a minority community's survival at an existential level, as anyone who has worked in genocide studies would see with research in Armenian, Rwandan, Bosnian and Jewish communities, uh, for example. And so there is a trauma that a person can experience on the physical, psychological, and emotional level. And, you know, we're talking about a part of the world that experienced famine in World War I, if you're thinking of Beirut and the hinterland, for example, or um, the Safar Barlik, which was the forced military service in the Ottoman army for the Balkan Wars um, in 1911, 1912, and for World War I. And many of the soldiers did not return. So these are generational traumas around World War I. Um, and then especially around the Armenian genocide of 1916, where many survivors made it to Lebanon and Syria. And many of them watched as family members died on the death marches. And there were an almost unbelievable amount of dramatic 
political, economic, and social transformations in 20th century Lebanon and Syria. So I argue that that disturbed the psyche and, emo- and emotional well-being of ordinary people, whether any individual among them had a pre-existing medical or psychological condition or not. So the historical moment disturbed our spirits. And I think we cannot understand history in Syria or Lebanon without holding both these ideas of disturbing spirits in our minds at once, that jinn belief shaped certain treatment modalities and that political conflict shattered communities. But then there's another meaning to the title that connects to the medical and social models of disability, that doctors treated certain people in destructive ways. And this is something that researchers have been turning their attention to more and more in the last few decades. Um, and you know, people in the disability history fields, um, they've seen this in a whole range, um, not just in Middle Eastern history. The researchers have turned to lots of different sources to get at this understanding of what it means to heal or to fit in in a community. And there is in some ways a trauma to surviving the quote unquote healing in and of itself. So this involves working with lots of primary sources, including religious and cultural artifacts that were used by the people who lived or died in those spaces, not just the historical, you know, the hospital records left behind by doctors that were working to try to subdue or control people or to do what they thought would lead to improving their patient's quality of life, but in a way that ultimately um, can, can negatively impact them. Yeah, and that's uh, the fact that you look at these two different ways of understanding spirit. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. That's what makes uh, made your book so fascinating to me. But tell me about your temporal and geographic scopes here. Why did you pick these two countries in particular? And you also cover a very long time frame. Right, we go from the late 19th century all the way uh, to the current conflict and refugee crisis in Syria. Tell us about these decisions. Yeah, so a, a big part of picking that 120 years or so was to show the continuities in mental health ideas and treatment despite all the ruptures, like the political changes and the end of the Ottoman Empire. And then there's the roughly 25-year period of French mandatory rule over Syria and Lebanon uh, between World War I and World War II, and the end of World War II. And then there's the, the 60 years or so of post-colonial nationalism. So in all of that time, there were spiritual and psychiatric approaches to health um, that were a sort of through line. You know, there were ideas about illness that existed um, in 1893 that still existed in 1943 that still existed in 1993. And even though certain aspects of treatment changed along the way, physicians, you know, they might prescribe a different pill, for example, or a sheikh or a sheikha gives a person a new amulet made with maybe a different magical charm than the one that the sheikha's grandmother used before. But in all that, you have a shared history. And parts of Lebanon and Syria were under the same provincial administration in the Ottoman period. There were even parts of other areas with different modern day political borders like Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Turkey, Iraq. Each of these have Ottoman legacies that overlapped, that shared the same leaders posted in Beirut or Damascus or Aleppo, for example, that had been trained in Istanbul. There were the same laws covering all these areas in the Ottoman period, including the Ottoman Mental Health Hospitalization Act from 1876. And in the interwar period, the French controlled both the Lebanese and Syrian areas through hospitals in, uh, but you know, there were hospitals in Lebanon that were largely private, like the medical missionary hospital Asforie, 
uh, which first opened in the late 1890s, you know, in the Ottoman period, well before the French government arrived. While in Syria, there was the one public hospital, completely secular, no proselytizing, which opened in the 1920s after the French arrived. But it opened in a building that had been a bimaristan, which is from the Persian words for a place for the sick that existed in the Islamic world for centuries. So another reason I was drawn to Syria and Lebanon was because of the tragedy and the beauty that lives in both these places. It's, it's haunting. The famine of 1914, the Armenian genocide in Anatolia, it brought Armenians on death marches through Aleppo, um, which is in Syria, and some survived and stayed there. And there was a thriving Armenian community there before the Syrian civil war. And there are lots of survivors of the Armenian genocide that planted roots in Lebanon and thrived during the French mandate, where the French favored Christians over all others. So part of the allure of Syria and Lebanon to me is the resilience in the face of all this injustice. You know, what the Turkish Committee of Union and Progress did to Armenians was unconscionable. That same political party that murdered so many Armenians, they had a CUP leader among them, Jamal Pasha, who was nicknamed by Syrians the blood shedder because he also arrested, deported, or executed Arab leaders in 1915 and 1916, while Jamal Antal'at Pasha also sent a million Armenians off to die. So it was unconscionable. What the Maronite Kata'ib forces did to Palestinian Muslim refugees in Sabra and Shatila in 1982 during the Lebanese civil war was unconscionable. Mark Westmoreland has said of Beirut that post-war anxiety has let killers and ghosts roam the streets together. So I write about how traumatic this all is. How do people run a country after all this? How do you run two countries that share a border? you know, where the post-colonial governments have often been at odds with each other, even as families live on both sides of the border. Uh, there are articles now about how the shattered generation in Syria will be the one to rule the country one day, but at what cost? Lebanon's civil war from 1975 to 1990, it, it technically ended, but the hatred that spawned it, the sectarianism, the, the political infighting and the, the injustice for um, civic duty, civic rights between different groups, that all still exists. It's all still there. Some of the leaders in Lebanon are literally the same men who killed different sects, group, individuals and communities in the Lebanese civil war. And the law that passed in Lebanese parliament in August of 1991 that afforded blanket amnesty for most crimes committed during the civil war, it really, it just helped create this nightmare. And we cannot pretend that this does not affect people. The Syrian military occupied Lebanon in 1976, and they did not leave until the Cedar Revolution in 2005 after Rafiq Hariri's assassination. And this is a murder of a recent Lebanese prime minister, presumably approved by the Syrian government. So there's, these countries have intertwined um, experiences. And how do you build national trust in Lebanon or in Syria when the community, your own community, the neighboring border state, they know what you've done and they know the government will help you hide? And in Syria now, after 10 years of the civil war, this is all the more painful because everyone knows Unlike in 1982 in Sabra and Shatila in Beirut, and unlike the horrors in Syria in Hama in 1983, people have cell phones now. They have live video stream, Facebook, everyone knows. And it makes it so much more painful that the world sees it but pretends they don't care, or they care but not enough to do enough. And so I really, you know, I can't stand it. I want people to care. 
So that's a big part of why I put some of this material in and bring it to the present day. And also for mental health in general, I think so much of the world has experienced trauma. So many people are suffering and it's still um, a field that's where treatment is so deeply stigmatized, where diagnostic labels come with so much baggage that people often don't seek the care that they need. Um, and it's it's really something that there's several layers of, of the book that 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 people need to kind of reckon with. There's the Middle East material, but there's also this kind of larger conversation that people need to have about mental health um, and about treating one another with, with dignity and equality. Yes, this is an important book. This is a book that we need now. And I think it um, sort of speaks to how your book appeals to people who are not necessarily just interested in this particular subject. And I can attest to that. Uh, my regular channels here at NBN are gender and sexuality and celebration studies. But I migrated uh, for a brief period right now to the middle uh, new books in Middle Eastern studies just because I really wanted to talk to you about this book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> But anybody who has listened to any episode I host for this podcast, usually in the Gender and Sexualities channel or the Celebration Studies channel, will know that I'm really interested and I really like to talk about terminology. So I'll ask you a couple of questions about that. First, you problematize here the terms modern, modernity, modernizing. How are you using it here? And could you talk, talk a little bit about uh, this discussion that you have in the book? Yeah, so the way I work with these terms is with the context in which historical figures use them in Syria and Lebanon. And there is a parallel track here in the book about the way the term is used in social science research and, you know, post-Cold War policy fields today. So in the late 19th century, foreign medical missionaries were involved in the building of hospitals and medical colleges in many parts of the world. But the Lebanon hospital that opened in the late 1890s relied mainly on a network of Christian missionaries um, from, you know, um, Scotland, Canada, kind of the quote unquote Western world, um, while the Ibn Sina hospital near Damascus was completely secular in the sense that they had no proselytizing agenda. But both hospitals had an idea of medical understandings of disease as evidence of a modern, you know, quote unquote, modern outlook or worldview, whereas a disease ideology that was rooted in religious ideas like spirit possession or in local customs like the evil eye was evidence to those doctors of a quote unquote backward or traditional superstitious outlook. So in my work, when we're looking at what is modern, what is modernity, what process is modernizing, they, those, are, those concepts are rooted in 19th century understandings of biology and in ordering public space, educating future professionals, some of which were deeply problematic ideas and practices, by the way. So this, this is not a story about the you know, gee whiz moments in the history of science and technology. This is very much a narrative that delves into the darker side of science, the prejudices that certain scientific concepts justified, um, you know, racial, gender, class hierarchies. Um, these prejudices led to the marginalizing of meaningful systems of care in vernacular spaces, in popular ways of understanding the body and the community, including spiritual understandings, herbal treatments. So it's not a question necessarily of whether a treatment is effective or not. Um, and it's not my place. I don't think it's my place as a historian to weigh in on the medical efficacy of a particular case 
or to weigh in on whether or not a jinni was in a person at the moment of the exorcism. I see my place as the academic that tries to uncover the historical evidence about why someone thought a jinni was there, about why a physician thought electroconvulsive treatment was called for. So modern here doesn't mean the right path forward. It means what a specific individual or government supported as the right path and at what cost, because it was often um, it, it was often a traumatic experience, this forcing of, of new narratives um, of value. So I have a second question about terminology. Could you explain the CSXM, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm saying this correctly, acronym, and how does it create this possibility of a common identity or communities for neurodivergent people? And I think you mentioned here a parallel with queer communities and identities that I found very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of connects to um, what I was saying with um, find with forcing a certain kind of value um, in in one group or one path over another. So CSXM is, and sometimes people just say CSX. Um, it's the acronym for the Consumer Survivor Expatient Mad Community. Um, and so you you see also um, Mad Pride, um, the phrase Mad Mad Pride and Mad Pride Studies in in the research field and Mad Pride activism. Um, and so, like with other groups, including in the queer community, um, there isn't a single label. So some people prefer just CSX, some CSXM, some just Mad Mad community. Um, and there's some overlap in methodology and in lived experiences with the queer community, especially in the Middle East. Um, so Dr. Mohammed Abouleh Rashid in London um, has talked about this in his work as a physician and a scholar in Mad Pride Studies, that there is this reclaiming, uh, a normalizing in the sense that individuals see those labels like mad or, or madman, uh, a mad woman, as an aspect of their identity that makes them whole rather than a label that stigmatizes them or that identifies them as less than or as in need of change. It really boils down to a politics of identity that does not see difference as deviant, but instead as an opportunity to celebrate diversity. Um, and the medical model of disability sought to stigmatize difference and to change the quote-unquote abnormal to erase what made a person different. And that happened to people in the queer community. Um, the psychiatrists and psychologists labeled um, homosexuality as an as a insanity. It was for decades in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, labeled as a mental illness. And the Lebanese Psychological Association, which was established in 2004, they did not oppose homophobic, quote-unquote, reparative treatment or conversion therapy until a joint statement with the Lebanese Psychiatric Society in 2013 so that's not even like nine years ago. This was just after the Lebanese Medical Association for Sexual Health released a statement in opposition to sexual orientation change efforts, where they noted that stigma, peer rejection, discrimination, heteronormative bias, bullying, internalized prejudice, the stress of disclosure about one's sexual orientation to others place people in this community at a higher risk for psychological problems. So to be gay in Lebanon for decades meant your family could send you to a mental hospital just for being gay. Like there's no other, no, no symptoms of any, of 
other illness, quote unquote. And homophobia and transphobia in lots of places, not just in Lebanon and Syria, but all over the world, like Islamophobia or xenophobia or bigotry, any of these, you know, irrational hatreds and fears can give whichever targeted community you're talking about any number of psychological issues. So this comes back to issues around racism and mental health as well, colonialism and mental health. When a dominant group sees any group among them as or elsewhere um, in another country, for example, as quote unquote different in a way that the dominant group aims to erase or correct the difference they see, that leaves the targeted group vulnerable to internalized and external harm. And this is still very much a problem in the Middle East. When I was in the West Bank in, in Palestine in July of 2019, I spoke with a psychology professor, a Palestinian, a Muslim professor who was teaching at a university in the West Bank, who was convinced that the DSM should have kept homosexuality in there as a mental illness. And listeners who are familiar with extreme groups in the United States and elsewhere in the world, sadly, could probably name a few groups in, in their own area that still find justification in their own sacred texts for oppression and discrimination, uh, hatred even of sexual minorities. For example, this is definitely still an issue in some Christian communities in the United States. And there are pockets of homophobia in the African-American community, regardless of religious background. There's, so there's a potential for solidarity for common ground here between people in the CSXM communities and people who identify as queer, in part because they have experienced stigmatization and they both have pride movements moving to educate those outside their community of the tragic ways they have been repressed, of why that repression was wrong, and of how to, you know, one might say, even coexist with and even thrive in societies where they are minorities. So it all comes down to issues of human dignity whether a person is labeled as schizophrenic and left in an asylum for decades and forced to undergo electroconvulsive therapy there, or whether a person is labeled a homosexual and forced to hide their desires for a fulfilling and meaningful relationship, a marriage, a household with children, both the schizophrenic person and the gay person are still people and they deserve to be treated with the same dignity as anyone else. So what is at stake here is recognizing reason seeing mental capacity in someone? Do people think others have the capacity to be reasonable or do they see others as harming society in some way, as a threat to social order, as a potential point of contagion and what happens to, to those communities when they're marked in that way? So there's, there's a lot of parallels I see and, and kind of intersections um, with um, the queer community when you're looking at uh, Mad Pride studies in CSXM. Yes. Well, pr promise this is my last terminology question, <laughs> but it's because this is something really at the core of the book. Could you explain the, the difference between biomedicine and vernacular medicine? Yeah. So medical history scholars sometimes label as traditional um, or vernacular any healing systems that developed in popular practice among ordinary people, um, including people who may have a training system, an apprenticeship. Um, rather than in the framework known in the modern world as biomedical, uh, which has modern applications of ideas in chemistry, modern chemistry, not in alchemical um, processes from the medieval and early modern period, but modern biology, modern physiology, the understanding of the endocrine system and hormones and so on. But there's no perfect binary here, actually, between biomedical and non-biomedical 
or between biomedicine and vernacular because they don't line up exactly with the frameworks um, that, you know, included clinical spaces like hospitals, educational spaces like schools of medicine. Um, in, for thousands of years, there were written records about medicinal herbs, ailments, recommended treatments that, that constitute this framework of quote-unquote vernacular and traditional medicine. So there's traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic healing from the Indian subcontinent. Both of those um, medical frameworks had long traditions of, of educating, of training um, the herbalists, the doctors. Um, but for the purposes of my project, what I call vernacular healing is what scholars like Sara El-Rawi and Michael Fetters and others have called traditional Arabic and Islamic medicine which is a mix of prophetic medicine, meaning medicinal ideas with origins in sayings and practices of the seventh century prophet of Islam, Muhammad, in the Arabian Peninsula. And then there's also Islamic medicine, which developed over the centuries from you know, the seventh century uh, on, um, and which had roots in sacred texts like the Quran. And there's also a mix. So you've got prophetic medicine, Islamic medicine. There's also Unani which is um, kind of Greek, but it's coming from Galenic, mainly um, humoral theory from the ancient Greek world. Um, and then, so there's Unani, prophetic, Islamic, and then the traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic and Persian medical systems, they all connected along the Silk Road, along um, the areas of um, you know Asia and Europe and Africa that had Islamic empires, where um, scholars and religious um, officials, judges, physicians, they traveled across these landscapes and they interacted with one another, read each other's work, practiced with one another. So vernacular healing existed in lots of different groups, not just for Arabs who were also Muslim. Um, obviously, when you're thinking about, you know, thousands of miles of land for centuries, you know, from Morocco to China um, and, you know, as far north um, in into Europe as um, Bosnia and you know, all the way south into sub-Saharan Africa, you have a huge diversity of, of communities. Um, and there were Jewish and Christian practices in Lebanon and Syria that, like the Muslim communities, also had similar spiritual or mind-body approaches like prayer or dietary practices like fasting um, or eating honey, which there's a, a saying of the Prophet Muhammad that honey and the Quran are the two sources of healing. Um, and there are medicinal herbs like chamomile. So you can have a mixture of all of these ideas. So you can make a tincture from a specific leaf, you know, something that's not toxic, like basil or something, and you dip it um, you dip another part of a different leaf, also non-toxic, in honey, and then you use the honey or, or lemon juice from, or juice from another berry um, or paste um, from a seed, and then you, that will be your ink. And you write a verse from a sacred text, whether it's the Quran or the Bible or the Torah, and you put that verse on the other non-toxic leaf, and then you boil the leaf and the honey in water, and that's everything right there. You have treatment that is spiritual, it's mind-body, it's dietary, it's an herbal tea. Um, there's, so biomedical approaches and vernacular approaches do not, uh, they're not mutually exclusive in that respect, especially you know, in spaces about emotional or mental health where there could be a physical symptom like a headache or stomach or chest pain that has roots that, that manifests physically um, and has roots in something in the brain where you know your brain is where your mind and your body overlap. There's treatment that involves a holistic approach 
what some biomedical experts call complementary or, or alternative medicine, CAM, that can help in a way that a biomedical treatment devoid of culturally or spiritually meaningful resources would not help as much. So there's really, there are no clear borders here between vernacular and biomedical um, in, in treatment. But what the book is, is showing is that for many decades, the biomedical experts wanted there to be a clear border. And that, that forcing of the delegitimizing of the vernacular approach really lost them the opportunity to engage uh, with patients. And it's, it's a major reason why vernacular healing is still so popular um, throughout the Middle East, particularly for, for mental health. That section of your book reminded me a lot of my upbringing and the healing practices of my mother yeah. and other elders here in Salvador. So uh, it's it's a universal thing. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about this yesterday. My, my neighbors and I uh, were chatting about um, what what our grandparents used to do. And I'm, I remembered that my one, there was a time, I don't remember how old I was, I was a kid, and my ear hurt. And my grandmother, who was born and raised in the Dominican Republic, she took a cinnamon stick and lit it on fire um, and kind of smoked a little bit of it and then exhaled the smoke into my ear, creating a seal on my ear. And I know that sounds a little bit weird, but my ear stopped hurting. So yes. <laughs> uh, there's just it's an interesting, I think part of this book is about the way that um, the usually male, um, at least in, in, in Syria and Lebanon, um, these um, uh, European trained male doctors found justification for pushing away the knowledge that already existed in the community and delegitimizing it, devaluing it um, in a way that that pulled power away from communities and from individuals, especially elderly women, um, elderly men, um, people who were not trained in the biomedical field that you know physicians decided were now less valuable. Um, and so there's there's a tragedy in ignoring local knowledge um, that I think um, is starting to change because people, um, in different parts of the world are now starting to accept um, that culturally meaningful systems of care have some value in and of themselves. And there's ways to kind of complement each other's frameworks rather than completely, you know, demeaning people for, for something that's not, it's, you shouldn't be demeaning it. So that's kind of what, where I'm thinking. Exactly. I'd like to hear a bit more about your research process and, and how how do you decide uh, which sources to use, how you're using them? Sure, yeah. So, well, psychiatric history research has often been a space where authors privilege the sources created by the psychiatrist. And only in the last 50 years or so have historians really started to turn to the records created by the patients, or in the terminology we see now, the consumer, ex-patient, or survivor of the mental hospital or asylum. So while I do still incorporate hospital records to get those perspectives from the doctors, from the hospital administrators, I also look at memoirs like Heran Kachadurian's recollection of his childhood illness and of the folk practices and beliefs he grew up around. And you know, he Heran Kachadurian was a psychiatrist, um, and you know, he ended up teaching at Stanford University. University, um, in California, but he was a nine-year-old Armenian boy in 1942, staying with relatives in Kasab, what, what he called the only Armenian village in Syria. It's on the Syrian-Turkish border south of Antakya, and he's listening to neighbors in you know, his memoir. He's talking about being nine years old, recovering from his long illness, listening to neighbors talk about the death of a man in the village 
who they said um, he, the man, thought he was married to a jinni, a female jinni. And people disagreed on whether the man died because of a heart attack or if the jinni was involved in frightening him to death. So, you know, Herant is sitting on both sides of these spaces um, as a memoirist, uh, reflecting on these um, vernacular spaces and as a psychiatrist looking back today um, and not demeaning, um, not belittling um, those villagers, not denying the existence. Um, who knows, you know, if a jinni was there. Um, and I look at historical fiction that addresses the experience of confinement, the suffering of the person labeled as insane or as sick. And, you know, historians, when we work with fiction, we're, we're not usually approaching the material in the way someone in comparative literature might. You know, I'm looking at the way a novel may be a metaphor about something going on in society at the moment that the novelist penned or published the work. But, you know, there's also ways in which um, Syrian um, censorship by government censors doesn't allow for people to really address directly in nonfiction what they can get at in fiction. And this is something that happens in, you know, dictatorships all over the world. Sometimes you can see this also in Latin American novels, um, in places where the government is not um, so forthcoming about allowing publication of, of what's really happening. So uh, with historical fiction, I'm, I may be looking for descriptions of something that happened in real life, and then interviewing the author to ask where things diverged, and why they wrote something the way they did. So that's what I did with um, Dr. Anas Abu Ismail. Um, he's a nephrologist, and he wrote um, a historical fiction piece called A Melody of Tears, Sorrows of Syria. Um, and I also draw from visual creative work, like with the book's cover, which is a design based on the Syrian artist Anas Humsi's Wall of Memories, which he painted in 2015. After he escaped the civil war in Syria, he arrived in Lebanon, and he and his wife, who is Syrian-Lebanese, but like him, is also a musician, an educator, an artist. They're based in Germany now, and they have a young son. Um, and Humsey's wall of memories really struck me artistically, visually, as having both incredible darkness in terms of personal and collective pain and tragedy, as well as resilience, even hope and optimism in it. And there's only a piece of Homsi's painting on the cover of the book, actually. The, the piece seems, if you look at the larger piece, um, which is about five feet by five feet um, in size, it seems like there are so many emotional and physical layers to it. These dark brush strokes that look to me like the borders of separate bodies, but then they are entangled in each other which made me think of how the memory or even characteristics and stories of people can live on in, in others, in their loved ones, their children, their classmates, their students, or even like brush strokes, you know, they create separate pieces of ourselves where our memories turn us into someone else for a little while, looking a different way, being different in another space. And in the painting, it looks like there's a bit of newspaper kind of weaved into the canvas, embedded in the paint, um, and Anas made this with acrylic, an acrylic paste and paper on canvas, uh, 150 centimeters by 150 centimeters. It's large, you know, it's just visually overwhelming. And when I look at it, I see a few different faces. Some look older, more weathered. Some are small. Some look very young. There are spaces on the piece that are blood red. But what really jumped out to me from the first look were the yellows, the blues and purples. And there's this seeming chaos of cool and warm colors. But the black brushstrokes that to me represent bodies, especially faces, those borders connect all the colors. So when I was researching different visual material to incorporate, and I saw Anessa's work and reached out to him, I felt that his wall of memories was such a powerful way to give my readers a visual from the very start of how complicated Syria and Lebanon are, how colorful, 
how tragic, and also how hopeful and how strong, how our connections to one another can help us see that in the painting and in the narratives from the different kinds of primary sources that unfold in the book. And with his title, Wall of Memories, I mean, you can think about how a wall can help keep a building from crumbling. Um, it can help to have a strong foundation, but walls can also separate people and keep some out trap others in. So there can be a lot of layers of meaning to this. And so one layer for me is really methodological. We need different kinds of sources to break down the disciplinary walls between us to see this kind of bigger picture. You're working with all these different kinds of sources and you approach the material with these interdisciplinary methods, right? So I'm curious to know which part of the book did you find more challenging and why? Yeah, so I had Syrian psychiatric patient records from the 1930s written in Arabic and, you know, doctor's handwriting. And I had typed out annual reports in English from the Lebanese hospital that were directed to their donors overseas. So while they were both medical sources, in a sense, they entailed different kinds of focus. English is my mother tongue, and I, I did not learn Arabic until college. And, you know, phrases that show up in the 1930s in a medical file can be very different from what you've learned at school in the 21st century. So there was some work I had to do with dictionaries, some with interviewing medical professionals in Syria. And then of course, there was the historical fiction. Some was written in modern standard Arabic, some in English or French. There was field work that I conducted in Syria where I collected data in interviews with physicians or religious healers, uh, religious leaders um, who spoke to me in a mix of Lebanese or Syrian dialects of Arabic and modern standard Arabic. Um, and in Israel, I would be speaking with someone and we'd be switching back and forth between Hebrew, Arabic, and English, and the same in Palestine. And my reading French skills are much better than my spoken French. And I cannot tell you how many times I was mistaken for Moroccan, Algerian, or Tunisian when I was in Lebanon, Syria, or Jordan based on how I look. Uh, being half Dominican um, and half Ashkenazi. But the second I tried to respond to people in, in my attempt at French, <laughs> that they assumed I spoke fluently, because if you were a Moroccan or Algerian or Tunisian educated woman my age, you would speak pretty good French. And you could see the confusion on their faces when I explained my background, you know, from the United States, half Dominican. And I had to explain once where the Dominican Republic was. Somebody thought I was like near Serbia. And I was like, no, a little bit further west um, in the Caribbean. So after a while, I just went along with it. And I would smile and note in my Arabic, which is pretty decent, better than my French, uh, that the Dominican side of my family had some roots in southern Spain. So maybe there's some Maghrebi roots, some Moroccan connections there. Um, and I was usually not super forthcoming about the Ashkenazi half of my heritage, given you know, there was a Syrian government official once who, when he discovered that, he thought I was a Zionist spy. Um, and then in Israel, I was accused, you know, maybe half jokingly of being an American spy on Israel. And I've got pretty decent Hebrew. So there were, um, you know, political challenges, I guess, in, in uh, collecting some of the data. But really, the biggest challenge I faced was vicarious trauma you know, secondary traumatic stress. And for those of you that are listening to this that are in other fields, um, and I've, I'm sure you've seen this as well, Isabel, you may have seen this kind of event, this this trauma coming stemming from empathy in your own lives. And it happens to journalists, healthcare workers, anyone working for weeks at a time on war, ethnic cleansing, hate speech. We risk carrying that pain too closely and interacting with survivors, analyzing photographs or documentaries, 
seeing parents in shock as they carry their dead children, it absolutely affected me as a parent and as a person. And the, the doctor that I interviewed, Anas Abu Ismail, um, who wrote the uh, A Melody of Tears, Sorrows of Syria, um, he would receive real-time messages from contacts in Syria as the civil war unfolded. And he told me he suffered from vicarious trauma as well when he was writing his book. And there were these detailed medical descriptions he had. And, you know, he's a nephrologist. He has all of this material about what happened to these little bodies as they stopped breathing, these toddlers, um, in his in his book. And it haunted me for weeks. Same for the material from Samar Yazbek, this Alawi writer, living in exile, who opposes the Alawi, Bashar al-Assad regime. And she wrote The Crossing, My Journey to the Shattered Heart of Syria. She also wrote A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution. She has descriptions in these books of children caught in the crossfire, like a four-year-old boy waiting quietly in a bed for a doctor to remove the cluster bomb shrapnel from his chest without anesthesia, because they didn't have any. But if they left that shrapnel in, he would die as it crumbled in his little chest. You know, it overwhelmed me. It was an awful feeling to put that book down and look at my four-year-old twins after reading that, to see how lucky I was, how much tragedy another mother or father or other relative was enduring, if that parent or relative was even still alive. So it really took a lot of learning about my own limits before I was able to cope with this material well. But I also, I, I've seen my deep sense of connection help people. You know, it can be uncomfortable, but can get us from apathy to empathy beyond that comfort zone that protects us from acknowledging the pain of it all. That push can be just enough to open people up to listening to each other to participate actively in learning about the past, about present conflicts, about engaging in peace and conflict resolution, whether in our own communities or overseas. Because honestly, what happened in Lebanon, what's been happening in Syria and in Yemen, all that is a moral outrage to me. We cannot sit by and let this keep happening. Like Dr. Abu Ismail put it in part of his book, there's a character, Céline Dubois, a French novelist and journalist, but she marries a Syrian opposition member. She says, it is not a Syrian issue. It is a human issue. I'm, I'm glad that you brought this issue up because I don't think um, as historians, we uh, get enough training on how to deal with trauma. So I'm, I'm glad you're, you're bringing up this conversation. And I know you, you know, you deal with that in your classes. I think our, our colleagues in the social sciences are more um, aware of this and, and deal with this a bit better than I think we do. Yes. Well, not always, but uh, sometimes. Yeah, and I think that's one of the pluses of, of working, you know, kind of with interdisciplinary approaches here is that we can kind of communicate ac across our boundaries and, and, and find what's working in medical anthropology, in psychology, and bring it into our history classes as well. I would love to, to ask you a Several more questions, but um, to start wrapping up our conversations, uh, what did you want to achieve in publishing this book? Uh, you sort of mentioned uh, uh, this throughout uh, the interview, but I would like to conclude our conversation with this. What what were you wanting to draw public and scholarly attention to when you wrote this? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start by mentioning um, the Lebanese physician and historian Joel Abirashid. So she's argued that reconstructing war-torn societies should be achieved by rebuilding first and foremost the shattered individual, 
because mental health care is an essential part of public health. Um, and, you know, amid the tragedies of the Lebanese Civil War, Malcolm Kerr, the beloved president of American University of Beirut, was assassinated just as he and others were working to study the mental health effects of the war on children in Lebanon. And these scholars were working to build a more resilient population and to recover from the tragedies, to face the past rather than to efface it. And this is what I wanted my book to bring as well. We need to face these awful moments and grow love and grow compassion from them, not more fear, more violence, more sectarian warfare. And you know, Isabel, for me, this project took on a lot of meanings. I want people to share the pain I felt when I collected data on decades of damaging treatment and stigma in communities where family members or neighbors suffered silently or hidden away to avoid the asylum, you know, the, before it was a hospital and a curative space, it's this place of neglect. And I want people to reckon with that and with the fact that millions of people in the world today still do not get the health access they deserve to cope with whatever's going on in their bodies, in their lives, in their communities. And I want people to remember there is still a civil war in Syria to empathize with even just one person in the data I worked with to see them as deserving the same quality of life as anyone else, no matter their mental capacity, their sexual history or desires, their gender expression, their money, their citizenship status, their religion, their politics. I want people to feel the rage that I feel at Bashar al-Assad's government being appointed to the World Health Organization in May, just two months ago, even when the WHO leaders are well aware of the hypocrisy. Syria is now on the World Health Organization's executive board for a three-year term, and it will help set the agenda for the WHO Health Assembly and implement WHO policies. Do we try him and all his mukhabarat for, for crimes against humanity? No. Do we get them a seat at the WHO top levels? Yes. I mean, it's, it's outrageous. So I really, it's, that's the main kind of draw that I want people to take from this is, is to be involved, to have empathy and find common ground with other groups and kind of push for justice. Because there really are a lot of ways in which health and politics are intertwined. Exactly. And uh, this book is a great way to do that. But I mentioned in uh, my introduction, your new research. Could you share with us what you're working on next? Sure. Yeah. So I, I started shifting focus a bit from Syria and Lebanon um, to looking at the ways concepts in ethno-nationalism, psychiatry and ableism were connected from the late 19th century into the period of various regional eugenics movements, including in Latin America and in the United States and in Europe, to then the rise of Nazism and the tragedy of the Holocaust. And then the project narrows down to case studies in Israeli populations, including Mizrahim and Sephardim, Ethiopian Jews and Palestinian Israelis, all bodies that Zionist Ashkenazi political leaders and physicians saw as deviating from the ideal they promoted of this able-bodied, cisgender, white male heterosexual. So 19th and 20th century events and tragedies had reverberating effects, and their legacies persist even today with the current conflict between Jewish Israelis and non-Jewish Israelis, which is more than 20% of the population in recent data, and the conflict between Jewish Israelis and Palestinians in the region, which is 50% Palestinian, 50% Jewish Israeli, if you factor in demographics from the West Bank, Gaza, and all the land within the 1948 and 1967 borders. So I'm also um, really interested in studying health practices in Morocco, kind of shifting 
um, to a place that's not as difficult for me to be um, kind of traveling. I've, I've had some trouble with um, the Israeli government getting in and out the last few times. So uh, Morocco, you know, there was the Spanish, French, and post-colonial regimes of the 19th and 20th centuries. And I'm, you know, looking at the overlap between Muslim, Christian, Jewish, and, and other groups um, in Morocco um, that had similar, that were engaging in similar treatment practices throughout these political changes. Um, and then I'm actually also in the early stages of working with another disability studies scholar on an edited volume that we hope will lead to a handbook of disability in the Middle East. And, you know, I really love interdisciplinary methods, so I'm bringing that approach to all of my projects, oral history, film and literary sources, art and music, as well as the medical records and the memoirs from the CSXM community. Wow, that all sounds amazing. So please keep me posted and, and come back to talk to us when you have uh, new stuff published. Thank you. Yeah. Beverly, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much, Isabel. I really appreciate you. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke to Dr. Beverly Tsakoyanis about her new book, Disturbing Spirits, Mental Illness, Trauma, and Treatment in Modern Syria and Lebanon, which was published by the University of Notre Dame Press in 2021. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.